Good morning. My name is Will Barkley. Thank you, Pastor Aubrey, for introducing me. And you met my wife, Teresa. We are from Spokane, Washington State, the same state where Seattle is. We live on the eastern side of that. And it's an honor and privilege to be with you this morning. I'm so thankful to be here. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. Uh, don't, don't be, you know, weirded out when I say this, but I've been watching you, okay? I've been watching videos uh, online of Pastor Aubrey and uh, others preaching and you singing. Uh, it's just so touching and it's such a pleasure to be with you this morning to worship King Jesus together. And so I just want to say thank you for hosting me, for having me, for uh, allowing me to come. I do want to th- say thank you to the Pastoral Search Committee uh, I just want you to know this is the most rigorous hiring process that I have ever been through. You need to know, church, that your search committee is serious about uh, evaluating candidates. And I have a deep appreciation. Yes, please. They, they put hours in uh, evaluating uh, myself, uh, interviewing me, talking to Teresa, my wife. And uh, they take very seriously... Uh, caring for and guarding and shepherding uh, the body by choosing the right candidates. And I I pray that um, I've somehow passed. Maybe I'm here, so I guess that means something went right. But I am just so thankful uh, to be with you today. And I want to talk to you uh, about uh, just a little bit about myself, too. You've already heard some of these things is true. I've lived overseas. If you're wondering, okay, what am I? I am half Korean. My mom's from Korea. And I'm a pretty big Korean. In fact, uh, Aubrey, when he first saw me at the airport, his, he first met me, he's like, wow, you're bigger than I thought. So how's that for an introduction? Um, but we have lived overseas in a number of contexts. We love seeing the diversity of the church in many different contexts, and I see it this morning. This is a picture of heaven and how everyone from all tribes, tongues, and nations will come together in the end and worship King Jesus. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I've gotten to know some of you already, um, and it's just awesome to see this love and affection for one another, even though we come from totally different places. It's true, my fellow elders have uh, encouraged me in this opportunity. They've been praying. Just know that our church, Indian Trail Church back home, has been praying for you as we've traveled over here, and they're excited for this opportunity. And so I just want to talk to you this morning If you're asking, why will, why would you come, why would you apply to a position here at ECC? And my answer to that is, I want to see Christ be proclaimed in every place around the world. I want to take part in that. I want to see the preeminence of Christ in all things. The word preeminence, this comes from our text today, which we'll get to, means that Christ is in the first place place, that he is supreme in all things. Christ is king. He is the ruler of all creation and holds all things together by the power of his word. And so when the Lord calls on you, when the Lord calls on us as we applied for this position and maybe he says, go, we obey. We obey King Jesus. And so that's what we want to do this morning for the sake of his glory, want to joyfully, fully, with complete resolve, obey King Jesus and go wherever he sends us. 
So ECC Church family, I, I pray that this would be your desire today as well. To make Christ preeminent, supreme in all things, in every facet of your lives. You may not be called to go to the ends of the earth, although if you're here, you kind of came from somewhere, right? And the Lord may call you back home to your home country. But wherever you are, Christ is king. He owns us. He is Lord and master over all of it. And so my aim this morning is to preach this same Christ to you. I don't really aim to say anything new to preach the same Jesus that you've heard every Friday from your pastors. Colossians 1.29 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so that's what I would like to be about. If you do call me as a pastor here, as associate, this is what I will do, proclaim Christ. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Colossians one starting in verse 15, Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I do pray this morning for this body, for ECC. Thank you that you have brought these brothers and sisters in Christ from many different nations to come here, to covenant together, to be the body of Christ, to be Evangelical Community Church in Abu Dhabi. Lord, I'm so just encouraged by the love they have for one another, for their desire to to honor Christ and what a privilege it is to be this here this morning. Thank you for your mercy and kindness to us. And I pray that you give all wisdom, Lord, to your people here. Teach them your word, Lord. Feed them with the food that is your word. I pray that you'd help me to be faithful to your word as I preach this morning. May you be glorified. May we honor King Jesus above everything in the supreme place, in the first place, in his preeminence. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Colossians 1, 15 through 20, may be one of the most amazing paragraphs in the Bible. This section in Colossians, verses 15 through 20, describes Jesus' preeminence in specific ways. 
Many scholars agree that this section may have been a hymn or poem that gave instruction to believers about Christ and his nature. The language and structure of this section is styled in such a way that it's supposed to aid your memorization so that readers like yourselves and those for the last 2,000 years would comprehend who Christ is, his nature, his role, and his person. And you can break up this section into two different... You break up verses 15 through 20 in two sections. Section one is verses 15 through 17, describing Jesus' preeminence over the first creation. Section 2 is verses 18 through 20, describing Jesus' preeminence over the new creation. We'll get to that in just a moment. And finally, I'm going to close with a third and final section of Scripture, verses 21 through 23, describing Jesus' preeminence over our redemption. So that's my outline this morning for you. Number one, Jesus is preeminent over first creation. Number two, Jesus is preeminent over the new creation. And number three, Jesus is preeminent over redemption. So let's look together at Colossians 1.15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the mirror image of God the Father. God the Father is invisible, but now has been made known or revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, this is Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The language of image is the same language in Genesis 1.27. God created man in the image of God, male and female. We are the image bearers of God. Man and woman Human beings, indeed, we are sons. Christ in human form also bears that image, but even to a greater degree, right? When we're looking and reading about Jesus, we are beholding God himself. We were made in the image of God as human beings. Christ is the image of God. And anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. That's John 14, 9. And this language of image doesn't mean that Jesus is in any way inferior. We must remember that we worship a triune God and that he is always one God in three persons. Jesus as the eternally existing image means that he was made manifest. He was revealed. He came to us in human form. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. The point is that in Christ, the invisible God became visible. So friends, I don't want you to miss the significance of this point. Jesus came, sent by the Father, to reveal the triune triune Godhead. The Father intended a son, a human son, yet at the same time fully God, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We get there in verse 19. So Christ's image refers to both his incarnate state, namely 100% human, and his divine state, 100% God, coexisting together in one. So Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was actually born or that he had a beginning. 
Throughout history, many people have come and gone claiming different unbiblical things about Jesus and his nature. And there was a group way back 1,700 years ago that talked about Jesus having to be born. He was begotten. He was made. There was a time when Jesus didn't exist. That was their argument. Well, friends, I'm going to shortcut all of this and just tell you that Jesus has always existed. To believe that, that Jesus was born, was made, that he never eternally existed, it means that he is not God. We deny his deity if we say that he was made. One cannot be God and have a beginning. Jesus has eternally existed. So what does it mean that Jesus is firstborn? What is this language of firstborn? The word firstborn here actually refers to his position and privileges as the first son of God. His position as firstborn places him above and over creation. It establishes his prominence, his prestige. In Psalm 89, 27, God says this of David. Listen to this. I will make him, this is David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. The status of firstborn is one of preeminence. Okay? David was the firstborn, the, the preeminent king among the kings of the earth. Jesus is preeminent of everything, all creation. It says in, in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This for here is a ground. It gives us a reason for why Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He created everything. He has created all things. We don't usually think about Jesus being the creator, right? That's not something that we usually put in our minds or we associate with Jesus. And that's why we need to continually read our Bibles, like Colossians, to remember that he is the creator of all things. He created everything everywhere, on heaven and earth, invisible or visible, heaven or earthly realm, all things Christ did create. How did he do that, though? How is it that Jesus created? Well, John 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, friends, Jesus is creator, right? And what are we and everything else? We are the creature. Theologians have this term, the creator-creature distinction. It's helpful because it goes, hey, I'm not God. That's great. I am just a creature. Jesus is firmly on the creator side with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who has created everything. You and I are definitely creature formed from dust, and everything else, everything in existence has been created through Jesus. In fact, in Genesis where do we see the Godhead working? Where do we see the triune God working in Genesis? If you remember Genesis 1-1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The earth was formless and void. And then later on it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And so you have the God the Father, you have the Holy Spirit working in creation. Where is Jesus? How is he operative in creation? Anybody guess? The Word, the Word is spoken, 
And the Word goes forth. Capital W, Word of God, is what brings creation into existence. So Jesus is the one who is making things come to being. The power of the Word goes out, creating. Notice, too, that the only, not only were all things created through Jesus, but everything in existence is also for Him. Right? All creation is through Him, but all creation is also for Him. The end goal, purpose, and reason for everything in existence, from the center of the earth to the farthest quasar at the edge of our galaxy, is for the glory of King Jesus. There's not one floating subatomic particle anywhere in the vastness of space that was not created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And verse 17 says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things were made, there was God the Father, God the Son, as the Word and the Holy Spirit. He is prior to all things. Nothing came before Jesus. Chronologically, he has always existed. So the answer to why everything in existence, why you and I don't turn into a million particles and float away. I don't know anything about physics or anything like that, so if that's not correct, you can just tell me later. But why we still exist is because the Son of God so wills that we exist from moment to moment. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so this first section shows us, shows us that Jesus is not merely a sent Savior born in 0 AD to be a sacrifice as a mere man or a representative from God. Paul is making it clear that this Christ is God himself. Co-equal the Father in power, prestige, and priority. Everything has been subjected to him since he created everything. And in his obedience to the Father, his name has been made greater than every other name as Philippians 2, 1 through 11 tells us. So my question for you is this. Is Jesus supreme over everything in your life? He is the one who made you. He is the one who sustains you. You only exist from one second to the next because Jesus, again, wills that you exist. And we can be tempted to see Jesus and his work centering around us, right? He is the one who came to die for us, to save us, to love us, to bring us to God, right? We can be tempted to be us-centered when we think about Christ. But in reality, Jesus has authority, in all authority in heaven and earth. So my question is, is he authoritative over you? Over every aspect of your life? Are you even seeking to submit to his will? Do you rightly see yourself in light of Christ in that he must increase as we must decrease? This is where John uh, the Baptist said this in John 3. John was an important prophet, right? And he was proclaiming uh, baptism, repentance. Many were coming to, to John the Baptist. They thought John might be the Messiah, actually. And then Jesus comes. And all of a sudden, so many people that were following John start going to Jesus. And, his, and John's disciples are like, whoa, John, what are you going to do about this? And John just says, he must increase. I must decrease. 
Friends, do, you, do we have John's perspective? The people that were around him as he tries to proclaim uh, the kingdom of God, as he's doing God's work, instead he realizes everything has to go to Christ himself. Do we live that way? Is this our goal in our lives, in our ministry, in our parenting? Are we communicating this statement that Jesus must increase and we must decrease? I'm going to move on to section 2, Colossians 1, 18 through 20. That was Jesus preeminent over the first creation, everything in existence, all material world. And number two, point number two is Jesus is preeminent over the new creation, verses 18 through 20. Paul moves from Jesus' preeminence over the first creation to Jesus' preeminence over the new creation. In verse 18, he says, and he is the head of the body of the church. And you and I are this new creation. We are the one new man that has been made, as it says in Ephesians 2.15. We are the church, New Testament believers, part of the new covenant. And the church has been born through the gospel of Jesus Christ that belongs to Jesus. He is our head. The New Testament epistles are full of this body language to represent the church. Though made up of many different members or body parts, we are nevertheless profoundly interdependent. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that God has made the church, his body, with Jesus' head to need each other. We need each other, do we not, church? God has made us members, one body, together. And Christ is our head. So just so you know... Your pastors are not your head. Your elders are not your head. The worship leader is not the head. The wealthiest people in the church are not the head. The most well-known, the loudest, the longest attending members, they're not the head. Christ Jesus is the head of the church. We live to obey him. All pastors, elders, leaders, all those people, different parts of the body that function in obedience to his commands for us. So friends, I want you to notice this contrast between this transcendent Son of God who has created everything and holds all things together in this first section, right, in the first creation, to this picture of Christ who is our head. He's, he's part of that same body. We're connected to Him. What can be more intimate than in your own body part? I just feel your head, right? This is who I am. And so Christ is intimately next to us. He's made us part of his body. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified in Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We've been made so by this suffering sacrifice, and so he owns us. The rest of verse 18 says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And again, positionally, Christ comes before all others. Jesus' death and resurrection signals a new age, pointing to the future resurrection of all those in Christ. His is the first of many who will be resurrected. No longer will sin and death 
plague humanity. He is the first to rise in his new body, ascending into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has a body still. And when he returns, he will come back in that same body with the scars on his hand, the piercing in his side. But the second time, when he returns, he will come riding on a white horse as a conquering king. This is part of this new creation age where the church is made alive in Christ and we will be raised to new life with these similar bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And this is all done so that Christ would be first. That he would be preeminent over all things. Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is first in everything because in him dwells the complete deity of God. It's always dwelt there. It's always been there. Verse 20 says, Through him, so for for in him all all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And verse 20 says, Through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word reconcile means to bring into right order or relationship. And there is this assumption here in this verse that at one point there is conflict between God and man. The entrance of sin into the world brought separation and it brought enmity between God and man. The holy God could not abide in, his, could not abide in the presence of sinful people. This is why the sacrificial system was instituted at the very beginning. You see sacrifice happening in Genesis. You've just went sat through great series in Leviticus where you learned about the sacrificial system, right? And the reality is that the sacrifice of blood is the only thing that could atone for sins. And though Israel would practice the sacrifice of animals, those sacrifices could never truly atone for the guilt of the whole world. We need a perfect sacrifice. Jesus, with his blood shed on the cross, he has made peace. Jesus removed the barrier between humanity and God. Jesus is the bridge, the door, the way. John 1, 12-13 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So if you're a non-Christian here today, please know that this is what Jesus wants for you. Jesus came to rescue, to reconcile everyone who would believe in him. Those that do repent and trust in Jesus are then born again, and peace then has been made between you and God because of that sacrificial blood of Jesus which covers them. This is the same blood that makes them into sons and daughters, will make you into a son and daughter of God. So if you want this peace between you and God this morning, if you're sitting there 
not a believer, you've never heard these things, know that Christ has paid this penalty for you. And by believing and trusting in Him, you can have eternal life. You can be with Him, be made and uh, adopted into His family. I would love to talk, talk to you more about that if you uh, would like to talk later about who Jesus is and how you can follow Him this morning. So I'm sure you saw where it says here that Jesus will reconcile to himself all things. Perhaps some of you are thinking, that sounds a lot like universalism, that all people will be saved. Is that what Paul is talking about? Is that possible? Well, no, I don't think Paul is talking that about every human being being reconciled, being made right with God. Only later in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, he warns that the wrath of God is coming on those who continue in sin. Sexual immorality, covetousness, impurity, that's what's covered there in Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Jesus' work of reconciling all things refers not to every human being, but that every category of creation will be restored by Christ. Think of Romans 8, 19 through 20. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Jesus will reconcile every facet, every category of creation in himself, for he is the Lord. He is preeminent over creation. Friends, Jesus' power and position as our Redeemer and Reconciler is unparalleled. And He will renew His new creation. He will renew creation, the first creation, in every way. But only those who have been born again, who have repented of their sin and believed in Jesus, will truly be reconciled to Him. And part of my desire as a pastor is to see Jesus have this supremacy preeminence, this first place over his new creation, the church. I want to see the body built up together in love, since that is Christ's aim for the church. Since Christ is supreme over the church, we should look to him for his instruction on what the church is and how we are to live together. Jesus is clear in his holy scriptures and how we are to love one another and to maintain a unity together as Christ's body. So let me ask you, is this your desire as well? Do you want to see Christ supreme in the church? That he would be its head, its shepherd, and its king? Well, this brings me to our third and final section. Colossians 1, 21-23. Jesus is preeminent over redemption. We saw that the previous section gave us a preview of Jesus through his sacrificial death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and bring reconciliation, not just to all creation, but in making a people for himself. In the first two sections, verses 15 through 20, that was the, that was the hymn portion that I was describing. We heard about Jesus' preeminence over all things, but he's actually not named in those verses. If you look back in verses 15 through 20, you won't find the name Jesus. You'll have instead pronouns, relative pronouns, referring to Christ. And they have a reference back to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. 
just two verses earlier. Let me read to you what it says. It says, He, this is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So everything we've read in sections 1 and 2, which is verses 15 through 20, it all points back to this beloved Son. He is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. And it is in Him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what follows in six verses, again, 15 through 20, you have six verses that display the majesty, authority, and beauty of Christ and His redeeming work. It's all about Him, right? And then you get to verse 21. And this is what it says. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? And you. You're like, oh, all of a sudden the teacher calls on you, right? All of a sudden your boss yells your name. That's what it kind of feels like in that moment. This is who we were in our old flesh. We were adversaries. We were alienated. We were hostile in our mind. We were doing evil deeds. We deserve the punishment and wrath that God would pour out. But notice what it says here. It says, we were once this way, which implies that we are no longer this way. Once we were alienated, but no longer. Verse 22 says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Our former condition was dead sinners. Our new life in Christ is redemption and reconciliation in his body by his death. Notice that this is something that he does. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh. He is the one who has brought us near to God. For what purpose, though? Why would he do this? It says that we would be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, I want you to think about the magnitude of this exchange and how unworthy we are of it. It is a scandalous thing. Christ, the Son of God, dies on the cross. You and I, who deserve eternal wrath, instead instead receive eternal blessing. We are washed. We are made clean sanctified, we are made holy, and we are brought near to be with Christ. Friends, I I pray that you would never get used to seeing what you've received in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you need to hear afresh, anew, again, that Christ has come. He has washed his bride. He has cleansed us. If you believed and trusted in him, he has done that. And we're tempted in our sin when we feel really guilty and we focus on ourselves to say, no, God, I don't deserve this. And we need to be careful because to do that, to say that we cannot be cleaned is to impugn, is to say to Jesus and his sacrifice, no, it's not enough. And so I pray that we would never do that, that in our humility we would go to him and say, Jesus, you are powerful. You can clean me. So friends, it's not good news to hear that you face the wrath of God. The fact that 
You're a sinner. All of us what once were alienated, hostile to God. That's not good news. But we need to hear that in order to get to the good part. We need to hear that there is a problem that needs to be fixed before we can see how wonderful this solution is. Before we can hear about this good news that Christians talk about. We need to hear that we need Jesus. We need to believe in Him, trust in Him, and put our faith in Him. And He will sanctify us. So Christ means to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God the Father. That is, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It seems here that Paul's kind of putting a condition on our salvation, that we must continue in the faith. We need to persevere in the hope of the gospel that we've heard proclaimed to us. Is Paul saying that those who are true and genuine believers, now that you've earned salvation, earned, now that you believed and trusted in Christ, you got to keep striving after that? No, I don't, I don't believe that is what Paul is saying here. I don't believe Paul is saying that you can lose your salvation. The type of grammatical instruction, construction in the original language here is kind of like saying, if you indeed continue in the faith, and then parentheses, and I have every expectation and belief that you will. We don't have that in English, unfortunately. There's no way to make a conditional statement like that. Like, you know, I guess the closest thing is saying to my son, you know, hey, if you eat all of your ice cream, you know, you can have a toy. Well, he's going to eat all that ice cream because he's going to get a toy. But maybe, there's, maybe that's one way of describing this is a sure thing that's going to happen. Paul is believing that they will persevere in the faith and that Christ will keep them. And friends, this is the word of God to you as well. Continue in the faith. Continue trusting in our preeminent sovereign Lord. Don't be distracted by the things of this world, by the suffering, by the distractions that are in Abu Dhabi. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel which you've heard and you hear every Lord's Day here at ECC. Here's what Colossians 3, 1-4 says. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If then you have been raised with Christ. We have this, this told to us, this conditional statement, we, we have been raised with Christ, therefore seek Him. You have been raised with Christ, so continue in your faith pursuing Him. By trusting in Him, He will keep you. It says later in verse 3 of Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So those who have trusted in Jesus are dead to the sinful flesh. We still are putting to death in one sense. We're being sanctified. But we, are, we have our lives now hidden in Christ, in God. Brothers and sisters, I, I believe that the greater picture in these verses is that the glorious, sovereign Jesus, who has created everything and who holds all things together, is the agent of our salvation for yours and mine. You and I have heard the hope of the gospel. It has been proclaimed to you, praise God. And for those who have believed, who have been born again, you have been reconciled to God. You've been made holy. blameless and above reproach. And we're continually being made holy. 
are we not? Once we were alienated from God, separated, but the creator God came down in the flesh to rescue you and to make you holy for himself. We who are trusted in Christ are no longer enemies of God. So when it comes to the weight of your sin, if it feels like it's ready to sink you, think of Christ. Think of the blood on the cross shed for you. This passage we read today, the six verses, is Paul unpacking how glorious and awesome King Jesus is. And then he spends three verses talking about you and I. And he does so, when he talks about you and I, it's to point out that Jesus has saved us, and look how awesome he is again. And this is what we need. We live in a man-centered, self-centered world. A culture that is obsessed with the cult of me, of I. And the Bible calls us to lift our eyes to the majesty of Jesus. To consider his nature, his work, his person. To know him, to behold him. God himself has been made visible in Jesus. So friends, I pray that you would not shift from the hope of the gospel that which has been preached to you. As the body of Christ, let us encourage one another in the gospel, pointing each other to Jesus, our great and sovereign Redeemer, who has reconciled us to himself. May each of us say, hey, I must decrease, but let's see Jesus increase. May that be our joy and our hope. So, brothers and sisters, should you call me as an associate pastor of ECC, it is my aim to proclaim this Christ till the day that I die. I would come eager to labor with you and holding fast to this steadfast hope, living as those dead in our fleshly bodies, but alive to Christ. And it's my hope that as we, uh, that we will say to our neighbors and to the nations, Him we proclaim. We proclaim the excellent, merciful Savior, King Jesus. We pray. Father in heaven, how excellent, how glorious, how beautiful, how amazing, how superlative in every way is King Jesus. Father, some of us struggle with seeing Jesus as he is, transcendent, above all things, the creator of heaven and earth. He sustains everything. Every atom is held together by his, the word of his power. And some of us struggle to see him as our head, our gentle Savior who came to die on the cross for us, who tells us, come, carry my burden. It is light. Let me carry you. So, Father in heaven, I pray that you would help this body, this church, to behold Jesus as he is. I pray that as we delight in him, as we see Jesus for who he is, I pray that we would proclaim him to each other and to a world that is dying to know God and to be set free. Thank you for this peace that you have brought through Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.